Hey everyone, and welcome back to Practically Zero Waste, a podcast for making zero waste living as practical as possible. Before we get started today, remember you can leave a rating or review in app while listening to the show. So if there's a moment that moves you or inspires you in particular, then open the podcast page in Apple Podcasts, scroll to the bottom of the app, and tell me what to think. This week's episode is with J.B. McKinnon, author of The 100 Mile Diet and most recently the book The Once and Future World. We talk about his books and the practical and important work of rewilding cities and natural areas around us. It's a great conversation filled with inspiration and surprising facts, and I can't wait to share it with you. So let's go. I'm a nonfiction writer, and my writing career began really at University of Victoria when I joined the student newspaper there. Oh, cool. I went from there, basically. I went from writing for the student newspaper to being a, really being a freelancer is what I've done for the most part of my living ever since. I've had a writing career of about close to 30 years now. That's amazing. first book was called Dead Man in Paradise, and it was an investigation of the assassination of my uncle, who was a radical Catholic priest in the Dominican Republic in 1965. Whoa! Yeah, it was really, you know, since then, you know, I've really focused more on, I guess, what I would think of as broadly speaking environmental topics. So tell me a little bit about the 100-mile diet, and when did that come out, and what kind of led you to write that book? The 100-mile diet began in 2005 as a personal experiment by myself and my partner, Elisa Smith. And I mean, at that point, I had been doing some environmental writing, and I'd certainly been thinking about environmental topics for a long time. But it really came to a point when we were we were out at a, a little shack that we <laughs> own in northern British Columbia, and we ran out of food. And we put together a meal off of the landscape around what? us up there. You know, we caught we caught a salmon. We dug up some potatoes that had been planted there months before. We picked some wild greens and things like this. Wow. I had some mushrooms. And, um, and I, we remember looking at it and just thinking, like, this is the first time that either of us could ever remember having looked down at a dinner plate and known where all of, all of the food on the plate had come from. Wow. I realized how rare that was. Yeah, that's something that people nowadays who are having to rely on our supply chain and having to rely on grocery stores, like many, many people would not know that feeling of looking at their plate and being satisfied knowing that either they caught that fish or they know the farmer that brought that food to their plate. So yeah, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. And so from there, we, I mean, it just really brought home this question of, you know, where does our food come from and why do we no longer know where any of it comes from? And maybe even more importantly, was it still possible even to live like that in an urban area where we live? I mean, we live in the city of Vancouver, which is you know, a good sized city. Yeah. So yeah, we were just wondering whether it was even possible. And we set out to, to find out through a 100 mile radius circle around ourselves and said, we'll live on whatever food we can find within this circle for a year. How did that go? <laughs> it, went, it went badly at first, and it got better and better, I think is <laughs> the fairest way to put it. We started on the first day of spring, and we realized pretty quickly that that was a bad idea rooted in our urban delusion that on the first day of spring, like, the carrots just shoot out of the ground, basically. <laughs> and, of course, in Canada, that's not the way it works. So, yeah, we had quite a long, hungry, long stretch where it was a bit of a battle. And then 
as the seasons changed, it, it became much, much easier. And of course, by the end of it, we were totally transformed and we, we really never returned to eating from the global supermarket. Wow. So what was the process like for sourcing your food and trying to stay within the, the boundary that you had set for yourself? When did it stop being fun? For <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it had the advantage of always being interesting, even when it wasn't fun. But <laughs> certainly right away, you know, we were only able to find kind of late season winter vegetables mm-hmm. like beets and turnips and potatoes and and I mean, at first, the diet was just very repetitive. There was no grain. We couldn't find any grain, so we couldn't have any right. bread products. I mean, all of the things that you think of as adding brightness and life to your food, spices, you know, citrus, Salt. all of these vinegars, these sorts of things, they had all vanished for us. All Olive oil, chocolate, beer, wine, coffee, you know, all of these oh things. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so... Uh, so that was quite a shock, and it took it took some time to really sink into it and you know start to turn up the treats and the things that could bring some color to our diet. Fifteen years ago, when we started the diet, it was nowhere near as easy as it is to do to eat locally as it is now. There were far fewer farmers markets. If you went to a grocery store or a restaurant and asked if something was local, people looked at you like you were an alien. <laughs> um, in fact, in a lot of cases, stores didn't even know where their food had come from. I wow. remember asking at a fish shop and saying, well, where, where did this fish come from? And they said, the ocean. <laughs> and that was the Which ocean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now that's all changed. I mean, it's living in Vancouver now, if you choose to eat locally, you can certainly do so quite readily. There, people have started grain farming in this area again after a hiatus of, of decades. I mean, you could even get yourself a 100-mile beer if you want to, and oh, yeah. um, 100-mile wine. You can have a very rich and varied diet on a local landscape mm-hmm. now compared to what we were able to track down in, in 2005. Why did you choose local as your framework as opposed to I don't know, there's so many different options. You could have been vegan, you could have been vegetarian, you could have been pescatarian, but all like there's lots of different frameworks to kind of choose to eat better for the planet. And I don't know if that was your reason for choosing it, but yeah, why local? We weren't specifically choosing the diet to make the planet a better place mm-hmm. uh, or to to save the world. We were we were choosing local because we wanted to reconnect with where our food was coming from and know about those processes. And I still feel that that is the most important thing that people can do in their diet is to reconnect with where the food comes from. Because once you've made that connection, then you have a much better understanding of what the consequences of those food production systems are, and you can make much more personalized choices around those things. For example, I think in the Vancouver area, it it doesn't make a great deal of sense if you're trying to do the best you can for the environment through your diet. I don't think a vegan diet makes the most sense here, but I do think a vegan diet makes the most sense if you are shopping at the at the global supermarket, as I call it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're buying from the industrial food system, I think it makes it makes a lot of sense to be vegan. I think at the local level, it gets a lot more a lot more complicated and a lot more interesting. Yeah, but that was our reason we chose local was was because we were feeling this sense of disconnection from where our food was coming from. That's great. Eating locally gives people something really hands-on that they can do to connect with nature. Is that something that you found too? Yeah, we we always thought of and 
and promoted the 100 mile diet as a learning experience. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we actually, I mean, one of the ways that we were most frequently misunderstood was with the thought that we were, we were saying to the world, everyone should only eat food from within 100 miles, which we, right. we never said and we never, we never intended to imply. We were suggesting try something like this, try eating locally and see what it teaches you about where your food comes from. And our bet was that anybody who did try that kind of an experiment or exploration would end up choosing to eat more, more locally than they had in the past. And, and I mean, certainly thousands and thousands of people did that and, mm -hmm. and reported that that was the, the effect that it had on them because, you know, eating locally isn't, it's not like vegetarianism. It's not something that you do or don't do according to a set of rules. You can do, you could be a 5% locavore. You could be a 1% locavore. You could mm -hmm. be a 100% locavore. You can be anything in between. It really has to do with, you know, what makes sense with your life and whether or not you're, you're engaged enough to make those kinds of changes. Mm -hmm. There's one shop in Peterborough that is called the food shop and it carries exclusively locally produced food within like probably a 40 kilometer radius and you know things get a little slim by the end of winter early spring but then now everything's like there's asparagus and there's all kinds of fresh greens and new food coming in and it's a very exciting thing to have a place like the food shop and this isn't an ad for them but I, I do love them <laughs> a place like the food shop that is able to show you in all of its beautiful colors with a, a place like a farmer's market that says, this is what's in season now, and this is what's available within a certain radius of you. So try it out. Try a kohlrabi. You've tried this kind of root vegetable that you've never known existed. Yeah, and experiment in that way. It's, I'm sure, always going to be interesting. Yeah, it's, I find that eating locally is this it introduces a lot of simple pleasures to your life that we miss otherwise. People always look at things like, like a changes in diet as somehow being restrictive and therefore something that you're giving up. Mm -hmm. But in fact, in most cases, you're, you're gaining something as well. And, you know, certainly in the case of eating locally, I felt like the gains outweighed, outweighed the losses. Otherwise I wouldn't still be doing, it. <laughs> I wouldn't still be doing it 15 years later. So as you said, I mean, having asparagus appear in the markets again at this time of year yeah. is is wonderful and now you know I'm, I'm thinking oh it's only only about a month till i'll be eating fresh tomatoes again you know i oh, haven't eaten fresh tomatoes since last autumn oh, so I, know. <laughs> I mean for me all of those little shifts through the season are are wonderful they're things to look forward to i revel in the things while i have them and then they disappear and then something new comes on the scene and it makes for a, a whole calendar of of little, almost like little holidays. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you shop at the supermarket, you can get whatever you want whenever you want it. You don't experience any of that. I love that perspective of it being a holiday. That's really fun, especially now that we're approaching the seasons of abundance, uh, at least here in Canada and spring and summer coming up. It's going to be so good to be like, oh, the first strawberry of the season. <laughs> yeah. You taste like sunshine. It's amazing. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about uh, The Once and Future World, uh, which is, I believe, your most recent book. Where did that kind of come from? Once and Future World, like The 100 Mile Diet, had a fairly personal beginning. I was back to my hometown where I grew up in the interior of British Columbia in the dry interior, which is 
part of British Columbia that's a little less well known. It has cactus and rattlesnakes, what? And black widow spiders, and all of these sorts of things. In Canada, and, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's a <laughs> semi-desert area in Canada. Really? Huh. So I went back there, and there was some new housing developments on areas that I used to grassland areas that I used to walk on mm-hmm. and spent a lot of time in, and I was really shocked and disturbed by it. And I, one of the things I thought was, I wonder if the foxes have disappeared from this landscape. And I went and looked around and, you know, I couldn't find any fox dens Mm -hmm. the way I could in the past. And I thought, wow, you know, this is how we lose the natural world. But then there was a second stage of that, which was, I thought, well, I'm going to go to the local archive and try and figure out, have foxes been slowly disappearing from the landscape here? And what I learned was that foxes weren't actually native to the landscape. They had been introduced, in fact, to to almost all of North America and have been gradually spreading throughout the continent. And this was a complete shock to me that that I had grown up with these foxes. I'd always thought of them as like this wild creature on on the wild landscape. And here they were, they had arrived in my part of Canada, not that long before I had arrived in that part of Canada. So in how many ways has the natural world changed that, that I'm not aware of? I started looking at that in cases from around the world, and, and I was just absolutely blown away by the scale of the change. That's shocking. I had no idea. It's such a common animal around here that's so surprising to think of it as not being native to all the parts of North America. Just to follow up on this tangent, where, where do foxes come from originally? Well, foxes were introduced here from Europe. Um, really? I mean, it, it, it gets a little bit complicated because there were actually some foxes in North America, hmm. but they had very restricted habitat. For the most part, the foxes that we know today and that are continuing, actually, to spread into new environments are descendants of foxes introduced from Europe, mainly for either fox hunting or for fur farming. So you did quite a bit of research involving just the area that you had grown up in, but also maybe a little bit more of North America. How different is nature now compared to 50 or 100 years ago? I mean, the natural world is radically different today than it was in the past. And in some ways better, but in most ways worse. So if we look at something like, say, the population of beavers in North America, it's much, much higher today than it was, say, 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Right. So there are some good stories out there. But the populations of most things have declined steadily and dramatically. I mean, if we think about those early stories that you may have heard about, about so many salmon in the rivers of British mm-hmm. Columbia that you know, people talked about, the idea that it looked like you could walk across their backs or even ride a horse across their backs. <laughs> there used to be what they called the Great Lakes fishing technique, which was to walk down to the lake with a with an axe handle and <laughs> you know bonk a fish out of the water and, and take it home. Sorry, vegetarians. Um, the stories of so many birds in certain, yeah. of certain types filling the air that they would blot out the sun. I mean, those kinds of stories are very widespread, far too widespread to be you know just something that was an act of imagination by anybody. Yeah in a particular point in time, we really live in a, you know, what I call in the book, uh, a 10% world. If you look at the research on most species, or on many species, their populations, uh, or their range, or both have declined by 90% or more. 
That's shocking. We know this, but to really see the decline and to hear about the decline is has got to be shocking for people. Yeah, I think it's actually so shocking that we can hardly hold it in our heads. I mean, I wrote the book, and yet I have to stop and think about it to really, to really process and accept the fact that we live in such a depleted world ecologically. It's, it's not something that stays in my head every day. I think if it did, you know, I'd have trouble getting out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. But it is something that we need to, you know, that we need to confront and, and hopefully work to reverse. And that's where the, this process of rewilding comes in. Yes. So what is rewilding? This is kind of positive upswing of this conversation. We've talked a little bit about the doom and gloom and how it's so overwhelming that you can't think about it. Otherwise, we would all be too depressed. But here's the practical side of things, the how we can take action. So tell me a little bit about rewilding. Rewilding, the definition of rewilding that I prefer is the idea of bringing back wild qualities to places where they've been lost. Again, it's not a a zero or 100% type choice. We Mm -hmm. can rewild as much as we can in any given place with whatever amount of public will we can find to do so. It doesn't mean taking every corner of the world and returning it to some primeval Eden that it may or may not have been, you know, (laughs) 1500 years ago. It's just about trying to integrate the way we live with the existence of, of a wilder ecology. What does that look like? Because you're right, when I'm thinking of rewilding a space, I I am almost thinking of the erasure of human presence or human touch. But it can't be that because we do exist here and we just got to make it work. So how is it that we're able to do both? Yeah, I mean, rewilding can be as simple as planting milkweed in your yard so that monarch butterflies can you know, have a food supply again to, as you say, complete erasure of the human imprint on <laughs> one or another place in order to allow it to be as fully wild as a place can possibly be. But more often it's it's something in between. For example, if you drive through Banff National Park, you'll pass under a number of animal overpasses that allow bears, moose, wolverine, all of the wild animals to cross the road safely. A lot, that is a an act of rewilding because it takes away this unnatural threat and disturbance of vehicles and creates a system that is more like a continuous environment for those animals. That's an act of rewilding or the discovery on the prairies that you could just remove the lower strand or raise the lower strand of a fence so that pronghorn can crawl under it because pronghorn can't jump. Oh, <laughs> so wow. You raise up that lower strand and all of a sudden you have a fence that a pronghorn antelope can crawl under so that it can make its seasonal migrations. And cattle don't crawl under fences, so you don't have any problems with cattle making their escapes. So these are just simple acts of thinking about how we can integrate the things that we do as humans with the needs of other species, and the end result is a a landscape that's a little more wild. I love that it's forcing us to reconnect with nature in a similar way to the 100-mile diet. In one case, where our food comes from, but in another case, refamiliarizing ourselves with the needs of different species so that uh, everybody's needs are kind of met in a different way. Knowing that lots of animals are getting hit when they have to go across the interstate, instead being able to allow them 
a bridge that's connecting two spaces. In what ways does rewilding kind of go beyond just conservation areas and and restoring things in that way? If you look at the most ambitious targets that we have for conservation internationally, it's looking at saving, you know, setting aside perhaps 20% of the Earth's land and sea surface. Oh, wow. That, that leaves 80% of the planet to human uses, right? So you can see that if we don't also build some kind of conservation ethic into that other 80% mm-hmm. that's completely engaged with human activities, then we're not going to have a planet that has uh, anything close to a fully functioning natural planetary ecosystem. We're just going to have nature tucked away in a few spots and then this devastated landscape that's subject to the things that we do to it. The idea with rewilding is that it's not, I mean, I have nothing against conservation. I'm no, you know, yeah, I absolutely of support it. But rewilding gives us the opportunity to support the natural world, even in those areas where we are building houses, um, mining mines, cutting down trees, fishing, ranching, <laughs> farming, yeah. all of these other things that we do that really dramatically transform landscapes. And in fact, even in parks, we are, there's often a need to carry out rewilding because many parks have lost key species that they had in the past. How much does rewilding rely on human intervention? And like, at what point, like, you know, I'm sure it's different everywhere, but at what point can you put some infrastructure in place to encourage the restoration of a space, the rewilding of a space, and then step back? It really depends. I mean, rewilding can involve uh, quite a bit of human intervention and and human maintenance, Um, but it can also just mean lifting off the hand of human pressure a little Mm. bit. And a great example of that here in Vancouver is one of the urban stream networks that hadn't had salmon in it for decades. And then some people you know, started cleaning up one of those streams and cleaning the barriers out, cleaning the garbage out, and setting up the stream so that it was a little a little easier for the salmon to access and a little more desirable. And back in 2012, I think it was, a number of years ago anyway, salmon returned to those streams. And then once they did, they went much farther into the city than anybody had imagined they would. Wow. So it was an example of a situation where, you know, if you give nature an inch, it will often it will often take a mile. Other species are very resilient. They have a high tolerance for disturbance in a lot of cases. It's just that at a certain point, it's completely unlivable for them, and you know, and they're not going to go for that. I mean, a really dramatic example, a global, a globally dramatic example of how just lifting off the hand of human pressure can can release other animals was the coronavirus pandemic, yeah. where around the world just the retreat of people from a lot of spaces resulted in, you know, the immediate reappearance of other species in those places to make use of beaches or mangrove swamps or grasslands, even even cities. You know, yeah. people were noticing a change in the way animals were using space. To think that it's only been less than a year and we have seen significant changes. Like you said, just the release of pressure on an environment and how quickly it has bounced back on its own is really remarkable and kind of hopeful. Yeah, one of the things I say in the book is that nature isn't gone, it's mm-hmm. waiting. Right. And there's a lot of truth in that from my observations anyway. It's the natural, we often think 
that the natural world is, has simply been destroyed. But that's not a very useful thought. I mean, if we see how rapidly it can come back, recover, change, reintroduce itself, then, you know, that, that's quite hopeful. It, it just means that we have to make the necessary changes to give the natural world the space to, you know, to return around us. And when we do, I mean, it's not only the natural world that's rewarded. We're re rewarded as well by, you know, by a world that's more interesting and more magical and I mean, when the salmon returned to the stream in Vancouver, thousands of people went down to look at these fish. Wow. Um, it was just deeply satisfying, interesting, an opportunity to introduce themselves or their children to these grand processes of life and death and natural mm -hmm. cycles. And we do like this stuff, but we're, we have so few opportunities now to engage with it that I think we forget uh, or don't recognize how important it can be in our lives. Mm -hmm. I'd like to get into some really practical ways that on a small scale that people can rewild uh, the spaces around them. Um, but even if it's as something as simple as clearing the garbage from the barriers inside creeks and culverts and streams and all of those different areas that really do get clogged with a lot of junk, to be able to clear that up and see what a difference that makes right away. What are some really uh, hands-on start right away practices that people can do in terms of rewilding? Oh, I mean, if, Anything, people, have but, a, if yeah. people are fortunate enough to have a yard, yeah. which, which I'm not, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but if they are, then, I mean, one thing people can easily do is uh, garden with more native plants mm. uh, because those will be of particular interest to, to birds and insects that are already on that landscape. They can use even things like bird feeders and bird houses can, if they're used correctly, can be really effective in terms of supporting wild animal, the presence of wild animals in, in cities. Mm -hmm. There are you almost always, in almost any location, all kinds of organizations that are working on small rewilding programs, either bringing fish back to areas where they haven't been for, for a long time or removing highly invasive plants and replacing them with native plants, those sorts oh, yeah. of things. Even just leaving a small amount of your yard brushy and untended is actually a really effective way to support backyard biodiversity. Yeah. Something very few people do, but it's almost like having a little a little wild park in, in your yard. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that trend going around no mow May, like you don't mow your lawn for the month oh. of May. Um, just to give a lot of pollinators a chance to take advantage of the flowers and most considered weeds uh, to, you know, have their first food of the year. It was great. We actually had like a foot and a half high meadow in our backyard. <laughs> we have mown it since, but it was great while it lasted. <laughs> yeah. Those small things can, can make a huge difference to non-human life in cities. And, and then there's other... You know, there's other steps people take, like bat houses, bee houses, even newt and salamander and toad houses, these yeah. sorts of things. Um, if those are the kinds of species that you have in your area, that's great. Of course, other steps that people can take are, you know, to be careful about what they put down the drains and right. uh, what they throw away, which, of course, is, you know, a, issue that your listeners will be fascinated by. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, in general, one way to 
make a contribution to the rewilding of the world is to reduce your your consumption and and the waste that you produce. I mean, those are those are really the bigger picture impacts that that we have as individuals. And when we reduce those impacts, then we're certainly helping to su- support the rewilding of the planet. Oh, thank you. I love that. <laughs> I love when people are on board with reducing their waste. And you're right; it does it does have such a, a ripple effect. Like everything that we're doing, uh, the products that we're pouring down the drain, the things that we're bringing into our home, our actions of raking up all our leaves really early in March when there's a random warm spell and, you know, that affects the biodiversity of even just our backyards. Um, If things are laying eggs underneath the leaves and then we've destroyed that. So all of these simple measures can have a larger impact on the world around us and it's just a matter of like, you can't do them all, but if you can do some of them, then you should. Yeah, I always think the most important thing with, with these sorts of individual, individual acts of participation or personal change, the real value of them comes, I think, from the way that they engage you with the larger issues. Mm-hmm. Generally, I think that personal environmental choices don't have that dramatic effect on the larger scale of... Uh, addressing problems, but mm-hmm. I do think that they are more likely to engage us with those larger problems and to care about them and to talk about them. And I think that's probably the way that it makes the largest contribution. Oh, yeah. And I think that honestly, it's just about making you feel empowered and capable of change. Like if you can change something on a small scale, then you're right, you would be willing to take on something at a larger scale and fix things in like the society and systemic changes that we need are only going to come from people who are willing to make tiny changes in their daily life too. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if you if you open up a, a no-mow section of your <laughs> of your backyard and then you take an interest in the butterflies and other insects that emerge there and then you start to read about how populations even of insects have been dropping quite Mm -hmm. dramatically over the past decades and then you start to ask well you know how can I care about insects now because of the ones in my backyard (laughs) but now I care about insects at a global scale you know how can I make a larger contribution I mean that's how you hope that these sorts of cycles of change will happen exactly that's great. What is your philosophy when it comes to reconnecting with nature? What I really try to do is is pay attention to nature. You know, mm-hmm. not not just to go out and expose myself to fresh air, but to really try to pay attention to what's happening in the natural world. And when I do, it's always rewarding. I mean, it always reveals to me that there's much more life around me and it's actively doing much more interesting things you know, than I ever remember when I get lost in my urban headspace. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's very useful. I mean, it's just very useful to have that connection to other species and the larger processes that make the world go around. But it's very easy to lose sight of those yeah. um, when you live in a busy human cultural world. Do you have any other books on the way that you can tell us about? I do have another book um, (laughs) on the way, hopefully fairly soon. I can't tell you a lot about it, but it it delves directly into consumer culture and consumerism. 
Okay, great. That's awesome. Well, I look forward to that. Maybe we can have another chat. We, we can chat as much as you want. This has been awesome. Oh, Frank, I've been using that word too much. This has been great. <laughs> Where did the name The Once in Future World come from? Technically, it comes from The Once in Future King, which is the story of <laughs> King Arthur, I believe. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've actually ever read it. My husband's but, currently reading that book. How weird. Oh, is that right? For like the second or third time. It's funny. Huh. <laughs> I mean, I borrowed the Once in Future concept from mm-hmm. from that book, The Once in Future King. But it just captured, I thought, the idea that we don't really know what nature looked like in the past. Uh, we've, we've forgotten, for the most part, what it looked like in the past. Mm-hmm. So we need to know, we need to know that. We need to know what the natural world was in order to know what the natural world is and in order to know what the natural world can be. So the concept of the once and future world was that by looking to the past, we can, we can map out a more promising, more authentic future for our relationship with the natural world. Yeah. Do you think that that's, <laughs> I mean, obviously you wrote about it, so you must think that it's a possibility, but do you think that we could ever get back or uh, move forward together with nature to become something that is wild again? I absolutely think we could we could rewild the world. I mean, I, I absolutely think we can. I I have a I even have a fair amount of optimism that we will. One of the things I learned working on that book was that if you go back to the turn of the 20th century, if we were standing back at that time and we were informed people informed people who were looking at the state of the natural world, you would never have guessed that there would be whales anymore at this point in history. You'd never really? have guessed there'd be elephants. You know, all, a long list of animals seemed absolutely doomed to near-term extinction at that wow. time. And most of those species have survived because the concept of conservation took hold, people took action on it, mm-hmm. and it had the successes that we, we enjoy today. But now we face... You know, we continue to face new and different kinds of crises, but it really just takes the, you know, a mind shift, the power of an idea to capture a society's imagination, mm-hmm. and tremendous change is possible really quickly. Oddly enough, the, my experience with the 100-mile diet really showed that to me in a practical sense. I mean, as I said earlier, if I look back to 2005 and how threadbare the local food system was at that time in terms of me as a consumer just wanting to go out and buy some local food and I compare it to now when I can go to farmers markets multiple days a week both days of the weekend markets all through the winter grain is grown here again Um, all kinds of new foods that weren't being grown have been reintroduced or have been brought back into the farming system here I mean it's tremendous change in 15 years yeah tremendous change it's visible it's visibly transformed the landscape and the way that people eat in this place there's always so much more that can be done but this the speed with which change can happen when people's imaginations are captured by an idea is is truly remarkable one more question about the 100 mile diet i know you're following uh, a locomore diet as closely as possible as naturally as possible as naturally that it would come to you but uh things like salt coffee like what what do you do for that (laughs) yeah i mean when i say that we're still eating a local 
focused diet. Yeah. Uh, we're not eating, we don't eat a 100-mile diet. Mm-hmm. We ate a 100-mile diet as an experiment for a year, and we've eaten a predominantly local diet ever since. That's so amazing, yeah. So we probably eat about 85, probably about 85% of our food is local. The rest of it is, yeah, we buy salt. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Alisa really likes chocolate. Oh, me um, too. I don't make sure all of my beer is 100 mile, that's for sure. But some of, more and more of it has local ingredients in it. Yeah. But so almost all of the vegetables and fruit that we eat, um, all of the meat, all of the fish, uh, all of the dairy products, all of those things are, and much of the grain, actually, including, yeah. you know, the granola we eat in the morning. Cool. Um, all of those things are, are local in our household. And, and it's... It's not even something, it's just the way we eat now. We don't even really have to think about it. Mm -hmm. And you would never be able to convince me to eat otherwise because (laughs) the food quality is so much better. I enjoy the relationships I have with the people who produce the food. Mm -hmm. And I love the way that it reconnects me with the the landscape I live in and the seasons of the year. Is there anywhere that people can uh, go to learn more um, about where to purchase your books, um, learn more about you, find you online? Yeah, I've got a website, jbmckinnon.com. On Twitter, I'm at jbmckinnon, although I'm not the world's most active tweeter. (laughs) And um, if anyone is interested in following my writing, uh, my books, or magazine pieces that I publish, then they can send me a a note um, through my contact page on my website or through Twitter and just let me know their email address and they'll receive my personal, very rarely distributed mailing list. <laughs> a little newsletter every time yeah, you, yeah. every yeah, once in a little, while. My newsletter, it comes, my newsletter comes out very <laughs> infrequently because <laughs> I don't write and publish very quickly. This was so lovely. Thank you so much for talking with me and sharing all about your work and sharing about your different passions to do with the environment. This has been really cool. Entirely my pleasure. And yeah, thanks for having this podcast about an important subject. And uh... Thank you again. That was really nice. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to learn more from James, you can head to his website, jbmckinnon.com. Link is in the show notes as well. If you liked today's episode, you will probably also enjoy episode 41, Eating Local, episode 77, Garden Therapy, and episode 75, Seaweed and Climate Change. You can find all of those and many, many more in our archives wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to be in touch, send an email to practicallyzerowaste at gmail.com and tell me how you're doing. What zero waste dreams are you cooking up for the days when COVID is over? What ideas do you have for episodes or questions do you have about lowering your impact on the planet coming up this summer we have a few exciting episodes about foraging brilliant sustainable companies fertility awareness and Teresa will be back to kick off plastic free july so lots to look forward to your support of the work here at practically zero waste is so appreciated and i would be so grateful if you would buy me a virtual cup of coffee over at coffee.com slash callahan everything helps to keep the podcast going that's all from me this week as usual your mission is to go outside pay attention to nature have a great week everyone and i'll talk to you soon